The president trying to get his infrastructure bill across the finish line, with Indiana's congressional delegation debating the details. Today we'll talk with Congressman Andre Carson and Congressman Trey Hollingsworth, plus the latest on the legal battle between the governor and the attorney general, and what state health officials are saying about the Delta variant here in Indiana. It's all ahead this Sunday in Focus. Good morning. State health officials updating Hoosiers Friday on the fight against COVID-19 and the rapidly spreading Delta variant here in Indiana. We'll have more on that coming up later this morning. And there's also the legal battle here in Indiana playing out between Governor Holcomb and Attorney General Todd Rokita. The governor winning a battle in court this past week as the AG files a lawsuit of his own on a separate issue. We'll talk about that with our panel coming up. But we start in the nation's capital as lawmakers inch closer to a vote on the infrastructure deal. Perhaps in the coming weeks, the president's still trying to get that bill across the finish line while also touting other policies and tax credits that he says will help American families. Our Washington correspondent Alexandra Limon has more. President Biden has been pushing for an infrastructure deal that includes an investment in early childhood education, and he's making the argument that that investment will help the U.S. economy in the long run. America's back. President Joe Biden says his COVID relief bill is helping the U.S. economy rebound, and he's making the pitch that investing again, this time in education and child care, will do even more. Does anybody think in the 21st century, with the change that's taking place in technology and across the board, that 12 years of education is enough? As part of his human infrastructure plan, the president proposes providing free preschool education as well as free community college. That could boost earnings of high school graduates with low-wage jobs by nearly $6,000 a year on average. President Biden says expanding child tax credits, lowering health insurance premiums, and making child care more accessible and affordable will help middle-class families. My plan will also provide up to 12 weeks of paid family leave for medical care. And the most difficult moments someone will ever face, no one should have to choose between a job and a paycheck and take care of someone you love. In addition to long-term benefits, President Biden says his infrastructure package will also provide an immediate boost. We're going to make the biggest investment in roads and bridges since the construction of the interstate highway system, literally creating millions of good-paying jobs. You know, if you're really serious about this, let's look at traditional infrastructure, and that is roads, bridges, rural broadband, which is so important to the country right now, uh, and not muck it up with uh, things that have nothing to do with infrastructure. President Biden is still hoping to convince enough Republicans to support at least a portion of his infrastructure package, but he admitted today he may have to rely only on Democrats in order for other parts like education and green energy investments to be approved by the U.S. Senate. Reporting in Washington, Alexandra Limon. Alexander, thanks. This past week, Congressman Andre Carson was in Indianapolis for an event supporting the American Jobs Plan. He says the infrastructure bill would provide specific benefits for Hoosiers. We asked him about the plan after that event here in Indianapolis on Thursday night. How do you sell this infrastructure plan to Hoosiers when many of your fellow congressional representatives in Indiana have not committed their support? Well, I think when you're talking about 
the over 40,000 roads and bridges across our country that have to be repaid, resurfaced, and even rebuilt. We're talking about rebuilding our, 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 our rail infrastructure, our highway infrastructure, our airways, and more importantly, broadband, not only in rural communities, but in urban centers. And in the next decade, most American vehicles will be fully electric. And as vehicles are getting smarter and becoming more autonomous, we're going to have to make an investment in smart roads that can communicate with these vehicles to reduce fatalities. So this is a monumental piece of, a piece of legislation, and I think that it impacts Hoosiers and certainly Americans. Do you think the bill uh, gets passed and signed with you all later this month? You know, uh, there are projections that we'll be able to close this thing. It'd be ideal to do it at the end of the month, but there have been projections about maybe early fall. So we'd love to get our Republican buddies on the record as having voted for this. We know they're concerned about 2022 and they're concerned about Donald Trump campaigning against them, but we're urging them to be bold because whether you're Republican or Democrat, uh, black or white, this is great for all Americans. All right, last week we also spoke with two Indiana Republicans to get their take on the infrastructure talks, including Congresswoman Victoria Sparts and Congressman Trey Hollingsworth, who spoke with our Kristen Eskow. Do you support this most recent bipartisan infrastructure deal? Well, I much of that deal hasn't been put into writing yet. There's still a lot of talking points and very little pen to paper legislative activity on it. Much still needs to be worked out about how it is paid for. And I think those provisions are going to detail whether it will get a lot of Republican support or not. What would that mechanism have to be for the bill to gain your support? Well, number one, there are two big pieces here. Number one is making sure that it's focused on infrastructure that matters most to Hoosiers. I hear about roads. I hear about bridges. I hear about locks. I hear about dams all of the time. I want to make sure we're focused on that infrastructure specifically. And secondarily, I don't want to see gargantuan tax increases that will impact hardworking Hoosiers today to pay for those infrastructure improvements, right? We've seen where user fees can really work to ensure those that are using more of those roads are paying for more of those roads versus just blanket taxation that tends to be redirected by wily politicians into their pet projects instead of the projects that really matter to Hoosiers. I think we should come up with bipartisan deal where both sides negotiate and we can come to some more narrow focused infrastructure bill that both sides can support. And I think the Senate is working on this issues. Unfortunately, the House and our Speaker doesn't want to work on any bipartisan legislation. It's unfortunate. So hopefully what Senate is doing is going to happen because we want to invest in future assets, right? The assets that bring future returns. We want to have good roads and bridges. We need to have high-speed internet access at the electricity of the 21st century. And one can debate about all other issues. You know, there are a lot of things and the wishful thinking for both sides, but we also need to figure out how we can pay for it. And I think on a narrow deal, we can find common ground and hopefully it can happen. All right. Meantime, this week, Indiana's elected officials also reacting to the tragic news from Terre Haute, where Detective Greg Ferency was shot and killed on Wednesday by a man who once ran for mayor in Terre Haute. In a statement, Governor Eric Holcomb called the tragic event senseless and said, our heart breaks for Detective Ferency's family, loved ones, and those who served with him every day protecting the residents of the Wabash Valley. Meantime, Indiana State Police just launched a new body camera program this week. More than 230 body cameras and in-car cameras are now in use. By the end of August, there'll be 900. They say the cameras will help state police be more transparent with the public. And also this morning, we're following the latest on the fight against COVID-19. Our state's case numbers 
ticking up again this week with the Delta variant now quickly spreading across the country. On Friday, we heard from state health officials who say it's still something to take seriously. I think if you're fully vaccinated, you're very protected if you're an otherwise healthy person. I think that if you are immunocompromised or otherwise maybe living with someone who's immunocompromised and could asymptomatically take back an infection, you might want to consider masking under those circumstances. State health officials also said Friday that our positivity rate is up. Hospitalizations, they say, have increased slightly as well. We asked them if they're looking at any new restrictions at the state level. The health commissioner told us they're not, despite her certainty that we will see a spike in cases from this Delta variant. Well, coming up next this Sunday in Focus, we'll talk about Governor Holcomb's trip overseas last week and the latest news on his lawsuit against the General Assembly. And protesters rally downtown calling for voters' rights. We'll talk with our panel about the controversial debate over legislation at the state and federal level up next. Governor Eric Holcomb overseas this past week in the Persian Gulf country of Qatar. He met with government and business leaders and visited with U.S. troops stationed there. The governor also recently made a trip to Israel. All this as the governor continues his legal fight, getting the green light last week to move ahead with his lawsuit against the General Assembly over their bill, allowing the legislature to call itself into session instead of the governor. Let's talk about it all with our panel right now. Abdul Hakim Shabazz from IndiePolitics.org. You Indy political science professor, Dr. Laura Wilson with us on Zoom as well. And here in studio today, great to have you both with us. Former State Party Chair Robin Winston and former GOP lawmaker Mike Murphy. Abdul, you're an attorney. I'm going to start with you on this ruling allowing the governor's lawsuit to proceed. What does this mean? And, and can the governor also prevail on the merits of the lawsuit itself? Uh, well, in a nutshell, Dan, we've got two things going on here. One is a procedural move. The other one is a substantive move. Now, the substance of the move, that won't be decided until September when uh, Judge Jacek will hear uh, arguments on the substance of legislation. This was basically a procedural one. Todd Rakeen had filed a motion to dismiss, basically saying that the governor couldn't hire his own lawyer and lawmakers couldn't be sued while he, were, he was in session. Now, to keep it at a 30,000-foot level, uh, the judge said no, uh, in a nutshell. And I think this was a major victory for the governor to win on these procedural grounds. So now we move to the next step, which is the substantive grounds. And Laura, this continues to be quite a, a legal battle between some pretty key figures in our state government. It is. And you really see this playing out in terms of a discussion of the Constitution, but to Abdul's point, uh, questions about power, who has the right to make these decisions. And one thing I would just emphasize is we've seen a lot of questions across the country in terms of gubernatorial power. We saw this come up in Texas and California and New York, and of course, playing out here in the Hoosier state. But also keeping in mind that our state legislature is a part-time legislature. They're considered to be moderately professionalized, so they're not in session all the time. Where's the governor is. Um, and of course, the attorney general's office is as well. Uh, you see this balance of power. And I think we're asking really great questions that in a time pre-pandemic, in a time where we don't really consider the powers of the executive office, we may not be really asking and addressing. Mike, you served in the legislature. You were once uh, moderately professionalized, as guess, Laura put it there. That was a compliment. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> What's the next step uh, for legislators if the governor does prevail here in court? Well, there is none, in my opinion. I'm not a lawyer, but if the governor wins in the September hearing or beyond, if there's any more appeals beyond that, which I assume there will be the Supreme Court, um, the legislature can only sit and wait. Remember, the legislature does not count when they're not in, when they're not in Indianapolis. They're very powerful between 
November 3rd or 4th or 5th and the end of March or April. And this year they're still technically in session yeah, right that, now kinda, in theory because they're coming back for yeah, redistricting. Yeah. But outside, that's why the governor's office and all the people in the state house love to see when the legislature leaves town because they think now we can get our work done. Yeah. This, so, this week the Indiana Citizen reporting, by the way, that state legislative leaders are coming together to get that redistricting process ready soon. Robin, in the meantime here, the Attorney General appealing this particular ruling. He's also filed a lawsuit this past week against Google, joining former President Trump this week, who also announced he'd be suing Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Well, he's, he's joining the Trump bandwagon to go after social media, but 36 other Attorney General, or 35 others also went in on this right. lawsuit. That has big ramifications. Dan, going back to the earlier discussion about Eric Holcomb, the guy's only got reelected in November. We're already in July, and the Republic, Republicans, no Democrats, are challenging his ability to be the governor. Uh, they're the ones that have filed suit. His Republican attorney general looks like infighting within the Republican camp. That's not good for their party. Yeah, the Republican uh, governor and attorney general really at loggerheads on this issue. Abdul, we should note when it comes to the uh, AG's lawsuit against Google dealing with whether some of their business practices are monopolistic. Former President Trump is suing the tech companies here, claiming that his First Amendment rights have been violated since he's been uh, bounced from those platforms. Do you think either of those suits will hold up in court? I think the, the, I think the antitrust suit has a much better way to go uh, than Donald Trump's, uh, in my opinion, rather frivolous and silly lawsuit uh, claiming his First Amendment rights are violated. I, I remind people the First Amendment protects you from the government. It doesn't protect you. From, from private folks. And none of us have been kicked off of Twitter or Facebook because we all follow the terms of service agreement. And if Donald Trump done that, uh, he'd have been fine. So I think his lawsuit is silly and just a way to raise money and, and stay relevant. So I don't think that'll win. Now, the, the other lawsuit uh, between Google and the antitrusting, that I think has some more teeth attached to it. And we'll see how that one plays out in court. Uh, Laura Abdul mentioned this. Certainly, it, it could seem to some that for the former president, this is also about keeping this issue in the news as well. I absolutely believe it is. Uh, you know, when we join these platforms, oftentimes we scroll through really quickly the terms of service because we don't care, we assume we know. Um, and there's the question, of course, did the former president violate those? The platforms say they did, and thus they have the right to kick him off. But but this is keeping his name out there. And of course, there are some that say that this is unfair. Perhaps the terms of service are unfair. To reiterate Abdul's point, and I think this is critical, absolutely everyone should remember it, but the First Amendment protects you from the government and social media is, is not the government. So it applies in a different role here. It's not applicable. Um, but no doubt, one of the reasons the former president's talking about it, he wants his name out there. And it's, if he cannot use Twitter, another way that he is able to get people to talk about him. A lot of this still stemming from the aftermath of the uh, 2020 election. A lot of people still talking about that election. Some protesters were downtown this weekend, in fact, rallying to show support for a proposal to expand voting access for Americans, activists marching from Senator Todd Young's office to Senator Mike Braun's office in support of a bill known as the For the People Act. It would make some sweeping nationwide changes to voting, including expanding mail-in voting and making Election Day a federal holiday. Supporters say it will help ensure all Americans have a voice, but opponents say elections should be left to the states, not to the federal government. Vice President Harris speaking about this legislation last week. President Biden will be in Philadelphia this coming week to talk about it as well. And Robin, this is a number of Republican states try to enact legislation this year dealing with elections that some feel could restrict uh, voting access in some states. And Texas is leading the, the charge on that. Every time we get close in the state, amazingly restrictions come on. 
Georgia was the first one. We won two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia. And Georgia lost the All-Star game, by the <laughs> no, way, yeah, they lost. That, which is this coming Tuesday. Right, right, yeah. they did, and they're trying to make an issue even of that. But, you know, voting rights, it's interesting. We can go online and book a hotel room tonight, give our credit card, do all those things online, but we're afraid for people to be able to go online, fill out an absentee ballot, be able to get it, expand voting rights. As far as state rights go, we went through this in 1965. States were making sure that people that looked like me could not vote and the federal government stepped in to make sure. So people that argue that it's the state's right to determine who votes, maybe ought to look at the history. Mike, ultimately, do you think we might see similar legislation uh, here in Indiana at the State House being, being oh, uh, sure. put I forth think, by Republicans? First of all, legislation spreads across the country. There's not very many new ideas under the sun. People go to these legislative conferences like ALEC and NCSL and uh, NCS, and they come back with these ideas, and all of a sudden there's 50 legislatures considering the same idea. I will disagree with Robin on one point, though. I do think, I'm a big Tenth Amendment guy, and I do believe that states, uh, is their job to, to uh, administer and monitor elections and to legislate. Now, unless it, it violates civil rights, and then the civil rights trump. But that's a, that's a, that's a legal determination, ultimately by the Supreme Court. But, Overall, day to day, I think the states should be running the elections. And obviously, it's the kind of thing that could wind up in, in the courts. A lot of a lot of these bills being put forth. All right. Meantime, also talking about the fight against COVID-19, we heard from state health officials on Friday about this Delta variant. We've seen other cities, other countries reinstate restrictions. Impossible to predict what might happen. Uh, Abdul, you think that seems unlikely to happen here? You were at that press briefing uh, with state health officials on Friday. Uh, yes, I was there, uh, and like I said, uh, as much as they are concerned about the, the Delta variant and the other variants, uh, it doesn't look like, at least for now, that they're going to go back and uh, go back and put in restrictions because so many people, unlike last year this time, have been vaccinated. What I thought was really interesting uh, was Dr. Box and uh, also Dr. Weaver basically saying that for folks who haven't been vaccinated, uh, they're concerned about their safety, that the, the state may have to switch to more of a one-on-one -on -one approach, like, you know, talk to friends, talk to neighbors, talk to healthcare providers. Now, those folks convince people to get vaccinated because vaccination is the best way to protect yourself you know, from COVID-19 and all the variances. And Indiana uh, still lagging behind a number of other states in, in some of those metrics. All right, our thanks to the panel. They're going to be back for this week's Winners and Losers coming up in just a few minutes. And coming up next this Sunday in Focus, we're talking about new civics requirements for Indiana students. We'll talk with the state lawmaker who helped make it happen up next. Indiana lawmakers are working to make sure middle schoolers have a better understanding of government. A state law just went into effect that requires the Department of Education and State Board of Education to set standards for civics classes. Here's State House reporter Kristen Eskow. Currently, Indiana schools aren't required to teach government classes until high school. And some lawmakers say that's not early enough. Having taught government uh, to seniors, uh, that was a little late at times. State Representative Tony Cook, who's also a former educator, says that's why he wrote a new law that requires civics classes in middle school. He says those classes would cover topics like the three branches of government, elections, and the U.S. Constitution. And in this time uh, when we've had some struggles to begin with, uh, I think a basic citizenship understanding of our responsibilities um, and our knowledge of our governmental system is imperative. Lawmakers say the class would be taught for one semester, sometime during grades six through eight, and it would be separate from social studies or history class. 
Now, a group of experts, educators, and government officials will help the education department come up with those standards for the course. Our students today are very informed, and I think uh, they often have a lot of questions about why and how and what is going on in, in, in government. Hamilton Heights Superintendent Derek Arrowwood believes middle schoolers are ready to learn about government, and some students and parents agree. It'll probably make your senior gov class easier since you know the judicial branch and the other branches. I think they'll be making better decisions, uh, using good judgment. Meanwhile, Cook hopes the course not only gives kids a better understanding of their government, but also encourages more participation. I hope they'll become much better informed and engaged citizens as they grow up. From the Indiana State House, I'm Kristen Escal. All right, Kristen, thanks so much. We're back right after this with this week's Winners and Losers. All right, welcome back. Time for this week's Winners and Losers. Abdul, I'll start with you. Uh, my big winner this week is obviously Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb. Uh, like I said, uh, the court's dismissing. Uh, Attorney General Todd Rakita's lawsuit that was the right decision to make, and it doesn't bode well uh, for the Attorney General uh, with the substantive hearing that's coming up in September. My loser of the week, unfortunately, are the citizens of Indianapolis. I did some checking on our crime prevention grant data. Uh, we spent $17 million uh, over the past five, six years in crime prevention grant dollars, and our murder rate just goes up every, every year. Continues to be a big issue in the city of Indianapolis. Laura? I have two winners, Representative Tony Cook and members of the Indiana General Assembly, recognizing the importance in terms of educating students about government before they become voters, which keeps them engaged and educated citizens throughout their lifetime. And my other winner is Zalia Avant-Garde. She won the National Spelling Bee with the term Mariah, which means a jasmine type tree. I didn't know that, but it's great because they had to suspend that competition last year. So we know the world's opening up again by having it this year. Yeah, that, that was great to see uh, for sure. Robin? Winner is, is Eric Adams, the new mayor of, of New York. This is a guy that campaigned rightly on criminal justice, but also justice for those who are served by the police departments. The other, the loser, has got to be those people that are still out there that refute the coming Delta variant and its impact. Mike, 15 seconds. Well, first of all, Dr. Wilson just uh, is for uh, civics because it's going to produce more political science. That's right. There That's, you go. It's self-interest. <laughs> but the winner is actually Dr. Jen Sullivan, the retiring yeah, uh, FSSA commissioner, yeah. outstanding public servant. Yeah. Charlotte is the winner there. All right. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for watching. We have much more coming up on Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus.